0: following content is provided by Mythgard Institute. Mythgard, making scholarly discussion of fantasy and science fiction literature free and open to everyone. Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number three on Inferno. Uh, and actually I actually want to start tonight. Uh, we uh, ended last night talking about the, um, uh, last night, <laughs> last night in the world of the class. Um, uh anyway um we um uh we ended last time talking about the discussion among the three blessed ladies uh who send Virgil down who end up uh through a process of delegation uh sending Virgil down to help out Dante and uh I had a great question on Twitter today uh from uh uh rereading tolkien is the handle uh and he says um Okay, right at the end, I was joking that it takes a village to save Dante. Mary tells Lucia, tells Beatrice. Uh, The question is, why all women? Do no blessed men care about Dante? And that's a great question and a great place to begin. Um, First of all, can I just say as a side note? And this is going to be true a lot of the times. I know you guys are going to joke about how I'm I'm always saying that I have no idea the answers to any of your questions, but it's more than usually true (laughs) with Dante. But the point isn't necessarily just that I am ignorant, though that is often the case and certainly a contributing factor. But the issue is that a lot of questions that people ask are questions which are like dissertation topics, basically. I mean, like that question. That's a great question. Wonderful question. Would be a brilliant subject for like a master's thesis, essentially, uh, on Dante, um, and uh, certainly on like the whole, um, the whole, you know, I don't know, like. Uh, well, the, the primary topic that I'm just about was going to start class talking about tonight anyway, um, which is the courtly love thing. I, I almost talked about it last time and then I decided to um, not talk about it. Uh, so let me let, let me explain uh, what I uh, what I mean by it uh, and and what's going on here. So. I'm going to try to do this uh, very briefly, uh, and I'm going to be treating extremely briefly a very long and very complicated subject. But, um, long story short, uh, in the middle of the Middle Ages, in like the 12th century, is when it really uh, picked up. Um, There came to be a really popular um, subgenre topic, and not exactly subgenre, even so much as sort of theme, uh, theme of discussion in literature in uh, in the Middle Ages, which has been called courtly love. It was certainly associated with uh, courtoisie, uh, with uh, courtesy, uh, though many people have challenged whether that's a really good name for it. Uh, I'm not too bothered one way or the other. But the point is, this became really popular. And what courtly love was, it was there is always from the beginning an element of humor in it. Like, it's kind of a joke from the beginning. Um, uh, And the joke of it is sort of on the one hand, kind of turning the love situation around. By which I mean, of course, like Look, male-female relationships were fairly one-sided in the Middle Ages. Newsflash, right? Like, women did not actually have a lot of authority here, right? I mean, you know, a woman's life was being under the authority of her husband until she was transferred to the authority uh, of her father until she was transferred to the authority of her husband. Um, you know, a, a woman was often treated like the well, like the the property, uh, uh, you know, or in, even legally considered the property uh, of her father. And then her husband. Um, so, the kind of reversal of that, right? To not only so when um, a male lover is wooing uh, the you know his female beloved. Um, he would speak of her as if she holds authority. Now, of course, she does have authority. Uh, This is the authority that she has. Of course, she has the authority to say yes or no uh, when he is wooing her. Um, And uh, this invests her with this, like, unique slice of authority. But much was made of it. And it was a lot of fun. Uh, People really enjoyed uh, this. And it it came to be... There was a, a bunch of satire that was um uh there was a bunch of satire that was uh, uh uh applied to it as well that is uh sort of political satire there was deliberately politicized language used that is like the um uh the the you know the 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 lover uh would address his beloved as like my lord like he would use a political title like you would use to your to your feudal overlord um and uh and of course, much play was made with that too, because of course, how did, does it, does everybody know how you, when you swear an oath, uh, you know, of loyalty to a lord or a king, how is that solemnized? What is this? What is the ceremony by which uh, that kind of a vow, an oath, a fealty, is solemnized? Does anybody does anybody know that? Exactly, with a kiss, with a kiss, a mouth to mouth kiss. Yes, exactly. You would kiss your lord on the mouth, uh, and that is the ceremony. So much play was made on that, like you know, uh, bestow upon me the kiss. Like I will bestow upon you the kiss of loyalty. Again, it was it's fun, right? Um, it was also, um, it was also. Uh, Made into a kind of sort of joke, sort of satire about religion as well, um, you know that the lady is treated like a saint, and you know she is like holy and above and uh and you know you 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 pray to her, you supplicate her to ask her to bestow her blessings upon you, and that grace should through her flow down upon you you can I, I probably many of you don't need me to expand on how the uh, off-color humor just... Flows when you start going in that direction, and that's exactly what happened in a lot of medieval poetry. Um, and you end up with, of course, because it's the Middle Ages, you also end up with this like really complicated like hierarchy of love. So you have like the you know the prelates and the bishops of love, but they're ladies, right? So you've got like the ladies who are the you know like the Archbishop of love, you know, who like is overseeing all the other ladies who are the you know it's 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 um it's complicated and it's fun and it's um. Anyway, so that's, uh, that's what was happening. Now, one thing that's, let me just say on the side, one thing that's not really certain, I'm rarely really certain about, is exactly how serious anybody was about this in the Middle Ages. Um, this is something, it is this tradition, it is this courtly love tradition to which so much of modern concepts of love and romance come i mean it's it's it is really the birth of of a very great deal of our modern conceptions but conceptions which go back i mean and i'm i'm using the word modern to mean like from 1500 on at least uh maybe 1400 on um so uh i mean it's just all of these things it's just it's it's enormously influential but although it gets taken extremely seriously later on it's less clear to me how um how, how serious people were about this at the beginning. It seems to be even a largely kind of literary game, and I'm not sure that everybody wasn't just kind of laughing and giggling about it uh, as they were doing, especially at the beginning. But... You know, some people took it much more seriously than some people got seriously offended by it, which is hardly difficult to understand, uh, and uh, were kind of alarmed because it was you know teaching things like uh, you know marriage is not or love is not possible within marriage, like the only uh, the only place where love can be legitimate is adultery. So there's this whole like black is white, white is black, upside down morality that was associated with it, and like it's uh, we're uncomfortable with that in lots of ways. Uh, anyway, it was. Um, It was complicated, right? But it was fun. It was fun. It was scurrilous. It was satirical. It was uh, sexy. And it was complicated, right? But it was the big, uh, again, not genre, because it spanned across genres. It was influential in multiple different literary genres. Um, It was the um, uh, really one of the primary and dominant literary movements in, uh, in the, you know, the high middle ages. So, um. The um. Uh, now, Dante. Dante begins. Uh, I don't want to use the phrase "begins his career," achieves his greatest fame as a poet. Um, as a courtly love poet, essentially writing his, writing and retconning his poems, uh, his short poems um, for his lady love Beatrice Um, and I I think I've joked before that their relationship really kicked off after her death. Um, They didn't really know each other that well until she died and from then on uh, uh, really their Uh, their relationship became enormously important. Um, Dante was not the only poet uh, to go uh, go this particular route, but he was the first and most important of them. Of course, some of you, if you know other poets like Petrarch, for instance, the next generation Italian poet, next generation after Dante, that is, um, Petrarch, one of the, you know, most influential poets of, for like 300 years. um, He, um, he followed a similar pattern. Uh, he also had a uh, very significant alteration, for, but all for the better, uh, with in his relationship with his girlfriend uh, a- after her death. So anyway, um, what Dante began to do was sort of transform what the courtly love thing meant, right? I um, mean, he was already beginning to transform that. It was uh, the, every you know part of the part of the the. Spirit of the courtly love literature, part of the 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 rules, the all well, the framework. Let me say it that way. Part of the framework of the courtly love thing in the Middle Ages is that love has this rarefying and no, uh, ennobling um, uh, effect upon lovers, right? Especially upon the masculine lovers, who are usually the ones who are you know. Pushing things forward. Not, I mean, the women often get nice speeches too, and you'll get women who fall in love at, you know, and have uh, fancy courtly love speeches and stuff. But it's normally the men doing the wooing, um, and they who are, you know, elevated and improved, because of course the emphasis is on that, because the lady is the one who is bringing them up. Right? They are looking up to her, and she is, uh, she is the one who is high above them and towards whom they are aspiring, and so they are the ones who are being ennobled, because you know they're the ones who really need the ennobling. Um, anyway, so it was considered morally ennobling again, how seriously people were taking. I mean, I get the impression that a very great deal of a lot of the early people who were talking about the ennobling passion were kind of, were like giggling about it, right? Like, you know, to the extent that like it, you know, yes, like when you're trying to convince somebody to go to bed with you you like go out of your way to act in so yes wow there's a huge transformation that's come over him hasn't it um like isn't hasn't he been ennobled like isn't this you know is you know he now he's aspiring to high things and i i think that most of them thought that was funny the whole time because the explicit goal of courtly love was to get the woman in bed um there's a, there's an odd modern idea that medieval courtly love is like this like completely platonic, you put the woman high on the pedestal and it's like, it's just all, it's all idealistic. No. Well, after Dante, much more so. Right? But that's a change that Dante himself effected in the courtly love tradition. From the beginning, it was explicitly all about getting the woman in bed. To achieve the final act of Venus as the, uh, uh rather, uh, Satirical clerks who wrote the the earlier stuff uh, would often say, um, uh, I, "That's that's that was that was definitely <laughs> that was definitely the point, right? Um, this is why again the significance of Beatrice's death. That's why Beatrice's death is so important, right? Because it's basically his love for Beatrice transforms transforms him and continues to transform him after she has been physically removed." Right from the world, but she still, as an ideal, uh, and you know, in his dreams and things, she she still forms this goal, which is continuing to pull him past any purely uh, carnal uh, concerns and uh, and out, you know, in, into something. So basically, Dante was one of the people who really popularized the idea of. Um, courtly love as something which actually does take you—that love as being something that actually does take you out of yourself, that actually can elevate you—and in a sense, the comedy is the most astoundingly brazen example of this. Remember, it's going to be Beatrice, his lady love, his 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 love object in his life whos who first sends Virgil to bring him out of his forest of despair, right out of his dark forest, um, out of the danger that we saw him in last time in Cantos 1 and 2, uh, and leads him ultimately to her so that she can then lead him on and bring him to God. Him, she is going to literally bring him before the beatific vision of the face of God himself. Um, and that is really like the final statement um it there, nobody ever in love literature is ever going to go further than dante goes in the comedy uh to suggest the significance uh of the ennobling passion uh of love of you know the 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 ennobling effect of love on people um so this, in part, is a long—this uh, is an explanation that was required anyway, uh, but it's also kind of a long-winded answer to that uh, tweet. Um, uh, this is why it's women. Um, are there blessed men interested in Dante's well-being? Possibly. But that's not the point here. Um Dante is just as we see Dante deliberately setting out to do a whole bunch of things, right? He's, he's, he's like somebody who's setting out, going out to set a bunch of records, but it's not just about setting a bunch of records. It's about completely changing a tradition just as he's completely changing the poetic tradition, the status of his language and all kinds of things, right? He's, he is, um, being a pioneer, uh, in all kinds of ways and extremely self-consciously. He is doing that as well, taking sort of the next and, uh, you know, sort of um, final step uh, in transforming uh, the um, the courtly love tradition. And I will say, Dante's going to win this one. Um, all of that stuff that I was just pointing to, all of that, um, is, okay, not all of it, not all of it, very much of most of the scurrilous, satirical stuff which, like, gives me the impression that I think it's at least very likely that almost everybody who read it and almost everybody who wrote it were all giggling up their sleeves the whole time, that this was all just, like, one big inside joke, that they all just found tremendously amusing, and nobody really took it very seriously, except for the people who were offended by it. Um, uh, that's... that's. um that stops basically people don't write that way much anymore after Dante. And you begin to get the people who are like, who speak of. And so, you know, those of you who did the Mallory class with me will remember the talk about love and the status of love. And, and remember how like, you couldn't even you like, if you didn't have the a reputation as a good lover uh, in, in, uh, in, in the court of King Arthur, you were nobody. Like, I mean, seriously, if you don't have a beloved, um, then, you yeah. know, who are you? Nobody. I mean, seriously, if there's no point. Um, that kind of, that's all, that's all post Dante. Like the, 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 um, what was a joke and honestly a dirty joke at the beginning, he transforms into a transcendent spiritual truth. Um, and it's kind of amazing. <laughs> actually, what he accomplished. It's, you know, he's, again, he's not the only one uh, to sort of push it in this way, and he's certainly not the last one, um, but I, Dante really is, in my opinion, the turning point of the whole kind of spirit of the courtly love thing. Um, so it's important to keep that in mind. This is going to come up to be important again when we get to Canto Five, which, who knows, maybe it'll be today. Let's see. Um, This is the response of Dante when he hears about the call, about the fact that it was Beatrice who, remember, he was doubting. This is the end of his I'm not Aeneas, I'm not Paul doubt, right? As little flowers, which the chill of night has bent and huddled when the white sun strikes when the right, when the white sun strikes grow straight and open fully on their stems so did i too with my exhausted force and such warm daring rushed into my heart that i as one who has been freed began O she, compassionate, who has helped me, and you, who, courteous, obeyed so quickly the true words that she had addressed to you. You, with your words, have so disposed my heart to longing for this journey, I return to do what I was at first prepared to do. Now go, a single will fills both of us. You are my guide, my governor, my master. These were my words to him. When he advanced, I entered on the steep and savage path. So you may remember that Dante's first move, you know, again back to the "I'm not Aeneas, I'm not Paul" thing, right? He was, this was, it seemed like a gesture of humility, right? Like, why why should I be chosen? Why should I be selected out to be given this tour? Um, you know, I'm following in the, I'm, I'm about to follow in the footsteps of Aeneas and being uh, going going through the underworld uh, while still alive. I'm about to, I'm after that apparently going to follow in the footsteps of Paul, being given a tour of the heavens. I, um, um, you know, why should I? I, I, I don't, I don't deserve that. I'm not Aeneas. I'm not Paul. And that would seem like a sort of salutary feeling, right? I mean, one could be forgiven for assuming that the response to that would be like, I am so glad to hear that you don't think so much of yourself, right? I am so glad to hear that you, uh, you know, are in touch with, like, how little you actually deserve, and, you know, you, that's, you know, excellent, good humility, right? Humility, by the way, the most awkward virtue to compliment anybody for. Um, but anyway, you know, that's kind of the thing that uh, one might have expected, right? But instead, of course, what does Virgil say? I can see you're suffering from cowardice, so I'll try to strengthen you, right? Cowardice. He characterizes it not as humility, but as cowardice. Um, and we see here at the end, this is at the very end of the uh, of the canto, canto two, that Dante um, basically yeah, concedes, like Virgil's obviously right, right? Um, and he compares himself to a little flower, uh, which is bent and huddled, after the darkness right it's closed up on itself in the darkness and when the white sun strikes it it opens up uh and you know it opens up fully on its stem uh and uh, to receive the light of the sun and he talks about his exhausted force and the warm daring rushing into his heart um and that sense of even himself being freed like he's been set free uh by this news now um i don't think that this is to say that, um, we're obviously not saying humility is bad. Um, and I don't think that there's actually necessarily a contradiction here. That is to say, he can make a gesture of humility, but also actually be guilty of cowardice as well. Um, it is considering yourself unworthy, um, Considering yourself unworthy is often a good thing. I mean, it correlates with humility, but it's not the same thing as humility, right? Humility, having humility is not the same thing as having a low opinion of yourself. Um, Popular misapprehension, but not the case. And certainly Dante does not seem to be suggesting that that's the case, right? If he is being called, if he is being sent on this journey for him to say, Oh no, no, I, I'm not where I shouldn't go. I'm not worthy. That's not for him to be humble. That's for him to second guess those who are inviting him and sending him on this journey. Right. And that's different. That's very different from being humble. Right. Uh, second guessing, you know, when you've been called and you're second guessing the one calling it's, it's, again, that's, uh, that's not humble. That's not a good look. Um, and and that seems to be the point uh, that Virgil is making. And that's what he sees here. Right. Knowing how this came about. Right. Knowing that uh, Beatrice has called him. And again, is not just like, oh, my girlfriend asked. Well, then, OK. Right. It's it's not it's certainly not him saying that, like, well, you know, um, I wouldn't do it for God, but I would do it for Beatrice. Again, that also is not what he's saying. Um, but rather, once again, she is the one who mediates this to him. But what is she mediating? She is mediating this this call, right? She has been. This comes down from quite near the top, right? Virgin Mary to Saint Lucia uh, to uh, Beatrice uh, to to you know th- through Virgil to him, um, and uh, it's so he he he's received this invitation. He's been told this is a good this is this is an act of mercy being done for his benefit. And also possibly for the benefit of others. Um, so for him to back down from it is, again, he compares himself to a little flower, right? A flower which is hiding its face, right? Uh, which is bent and huddled. Uh, it is, it is, it is cold, right? In the chill of the night, it is sort of suffering. The sun has gone down, but it responds automatically to the rays of the sun, right? It doesn't, it doesn't even make a choice. Exactly. Right. The flower, it's not like, good job, little flower. You know, you opened up. It's what flowers do when the sun shines on them. Right. And he, too, like a little bent over flower in the night, uh, uh, rises up and opens fully when the white sun strikes him. And that is the white sun here, of course, is the love and the grace of Beatrice. And of course, through Beatrice, Lucia and Mary and God himself above that um and his description of himself in this way as sort of in a sense passive right but also importantly i think open right open to receive uh the light that shines uh upon him um that's his little metaphor for his willingness and it's well it's a, it's a fairly humble little metaphor right uh comparing himself, he does not compare himself to the great hero he's not mistaking himself for Aeneas here right exactly um but um uh anyway, I think that that's um a really interesting uh sort of response that he has um and uh way that he's he's kind of navigates this uh uh this issue um I returned to do what I was at first prepared to do. Again, notice here acknowledging that it wasn't a sudden rush of humility, really, that sidetracked him. It was a sudden rush of fear. Um, he was prepared to do it. He was prepared to answer the call. And then he doubted. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. um Yeah, good. Serena, I agree. Humility could be admitting that someone else knows better uh, what you can do. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, Going where you have been called in this way, that is humility, right? Um, Anyway, okay. But then we go, we advance down the steep and savage path. Through me the way into the suffering city, through me the way to the eternal pain, through me the way that runs among the lost. Justice urged on by my high artificer, my maker was divine authority, the highest wisdom and the primal love. Before me, nothing but eternal things were made, and I endure eternally. Abandon every hope who enter here. Now, the thing to remember about the gates of hell is that this is line one of the canto, and I think it is supposed to be startling, right? Um... The fact that the gates of hell speak in the first person, and I say speak because it might as well be. There's, I mean, we're given no cues of any kind, right? No context that leads us to believe we're reading something, right? That 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 we're reading instead of um, uh, instead of hearing someone speak. Right. Because, I mean, actually, starting with the voice of uh, a speaker, starting the canto with the voice of a speaker is something that's going to happen in other places. Right. Um, so um, I. Um, I I think it's very interesting uh, that Dante begins our first actual interaction with hell is our first introduction to hell, as it were, is in hell's own voice speaking of itself, describing itself uh, in the first person. And it's only after the fact, it's only after line 10, when the inscription is done, that we're told that it's an inscription, right? That in fact, this text is written above the gates of hell. Um, uh, But so what is the effect of this? Why does he do this sort of startling thing? Um, Well, one obvious immediate effect is that it I was going to say personifies hell, but that's too abstract. Um, that's too abstract in English teachery. It it, per, it personalizes hell, right? Um, it gives hell itself a voice. It invites you to imagine things from hell's perspective, in a sense, right? Now, it is actually explicitly the gate of hell from the beginning, threw me the way into the suffering city. It's not the suffering city itself that's speaking, Right. Through me, the way into the suffering city, through me, the way to the eternal pain. Um, Again, it's not the eternal pain that's speaking or the way that runs among the wall of the lost. It is the thing through which you go. It's the gate. Right. That's speaking. And we can kind of figure that out. But it still sounds like a talking gate until we get to line 10. Um, So and that is an interesting thing that hell should be in this way made Personal, made even active, as opposed to passive, right? It's not just a place where people go. It is, um, um, it is it's like, It's like a person, a person who also has been called, appointed to a particular task. Justice, ur- justice urged on me, uh, urged on my, justice urged on my high artificer. My maker was divine authority, the highest wisdom and the primal love. Before me, nothing but it. I would start with that second uh, triad there. Justice urged on my high artificer. Who is the high artificer of hell? God. God made hell, right? Um, This is something that is going to be. Important to remember, we will be forcibly reminded of this later on, Um, but one of the things that it is always important to remember in modern in the modern world, well, at least the modern world, as judged by the Saturday morning cartoons I used to watch when I was a kid, um, one would think that hell was like hell is like Satan's penthouse. Right. Um, You know, like Satan is the is the boss of hell. Uh, like Satan is, you know, hell is Satan's domain, right? Um, this is not true. Um, uh, hell is first and foremost, Satan's own prison and punishment as well. Um, it is not the place that is run by Satan and the demons. It is the hell and the prison of, um, Satan and the demons. Um, So hell is not the work of Satan. Hell is the work of God, right? That's extremely clear here from the beginning. Um, And why? Um, Justice urged on my high artificer. It was justice that urged him on to make hell. My maker was divine authority, the highest wisdom and the primal love. I think it's no mistake that there is a triad of things that is used to describe the maker here, to describe God. Divine authority, the highest wisdom, and the primal love. Um, is that meant to map directly onto the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? I'm not sure, but I would guess that it may well be so. Um, but um, uh, but there we are. Uh, so... My maker was divine authority, the highest wisdom, and the primal love. These three things we are reminded of, these three uh, elements, aspects, qualities of God are the things that the gates of hell point to, right? Um, Authority, right? God is the one who has the authority and the right power to judge. He has the highest wisdom, um, the one whose judgment will be in erring, and the primal love. It, he is the, the, the source of all love. And that is not to be forgotten in the context of hell. Um, the place of pity in hell is going to be an interesting thing to be looking at, uh, as we, uh, as we go through. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. William, uh, Coley says this almost makes the gates seem like a mirror image of St. Peter, uh, St. Peter, of course, who is traditionally depicted as having the keys, uh, right. He's the keeper of the keys to heaven. Um, uh, and, uh, yeah. So instead of like meeting Peter at the pearly gates, you meet the inscription at the gates of hell, right. Um, uh, who introduces itself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, good. Um, Yeah, good. Stephen says we'll see several people with specific roles in welcoming and guiding the souls of the dead, and never really thought of the gates as being the first of those. Right, exactly. It's a little counterintuitive, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. David, I agree. Uh, David says I can get my head around all this except the primal love, which would seem to point away from eternal and unrelenting punishment. Agreed. That is, I agree that that is the counterintuitive bit, right? And I believe that that is why it is there. Um, uh, that is, it is one of the challenges for us to understand. I do believe that this is, this This is not Dante not thinking about that, right? This is not Dante just being like, oh yeah, you know, um, God loves you so much that he sends you to hell for all eternity and not having any kind of, issue with that or asking any questions about that. Um, I I kind of, David, almost sort of take this as a kind of promissory note for um, uh, that he's that he is (laughs) thinking about this and that we're going to see much more about that uh, as we go through. Um, That will not all be resolved by the end of Inferno alone, however, uh it really it's gonna it takes the whole commedia to see, I think, Dante's whole picture of that. But um but still, David, I agree. I mean that's that's definitely the uh um uh the issue there. Um Okay, let's see. Um Yeah. Okay, cool. Let's see. Uh Oh, yes, yes, yes. Sorry. Thank you, Serena. Yeah, I had uh, meant to mention that. Just as a side note, people were asking about, um, and Serena, I bet you were typing that when I was talking about the devil not ruling in hell, right? I had asked about Milton last week, and did Milton know, um, uh, know Dante? And I kind of, I was hesitant about that because I couldn't remember for sure, off the top of my head. I was almost positive that he did, uh, but I, I couldn't remember the explicit evidence. But Serena was reminding me, yes, definitely. Uh, I, my my impulse was correct and can safely confirm uh, that Milton did, in fact, know Dante very, very well. Um, um, yeah, yeah. Um, good, good. Um, okay. Okay. Um, Now, good. Jameson asks, would Dante have been a believer in predeterminism? Uh, Really good. That is to say, like, are some people just like predestined to hell? Like this is this is it's not, um, you know, does he believe in free will or does he believe that this is just sort of the way that things are? Well, I I would say we'll see. Right. Uh, We'll see what we think uh, as we as we go through. Um, I think that's the way I'd. I'd best like to answer that. Let's see what we think uh, as we go through, to, to see what, he, what, what we think about what Dante thinks about that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's a really interesting point, Ben. Ben says uh, Dante seems to place justice above or at least equal to God as it moves the unmoved mover. I see what you mean. Yes, justice urged on my high artificer. The um, The way in which it kind of, in a sense almost sounds like justice, sorry, is outside God, um, urging him on, cheering God on in his choice here. Um, No, I don't think that's what it's saying. Uh, I think that it's it is talking about like, um, you know, of the qualities of God, what was it that, uh, you know, impelled him to make hell? And the answer is justice. It's justice that urged on the artificer. Um, of course, he's going to go on after justice to emphasize authority, wisdom, and love. So there's other things there as well, which also do all seem to be involved. But I do I do think that it's an interesting point. Um, it is an interesting construction that he makes there. Justice urged on my high artificer uh, there. Um, Yeah, exactly, Jameson. It would be, in this sense, an element of God's nature. And I do think that that's what uh, Dante is suggesting. But uh, but it is interesting. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Um, Right. No, I agree. Yeah. And David is resistant to that, too. Also saying that, you know, we say that people are moved by pity, but that we don't mean that the pity comes from outside them. uh, Exactly. Uh, Yeah. No, I mean, I think that he is he is pointing to the primary place of the what is the quality of God which necessitates hell in this sense, which, which necessitated the making, of, which urged on the making of hell, and it is justice. Um, but Ben is right that it's an interesting way of saying it, right? Um, uh, he didn't, didn't have to say it that way. Um, and he literally puts it first. Um, anyway, before me, nothing but eternal things were made, and I endure eternally. I don't think I've ever understood those two lines. Um, sorry. I don't mean I understand them now. I still don't understand them. <laughs> sorry. I, I know that that might've sounded like a preamble to a great revelation. I don't want to disappoint anybody. I, I'm not sure I get those, uh, those, I mean, I, I understand what they mean, but I'm not sure I understand their significance. Um, before me, nothing but eternal things were made and I endure eternally. Um, okay. um, Yes, before me, nothing but eternal things were made. So hell or the concept of hell, I I would. Yeah, Mudmore uh, on Twitch, that's exactly what I'm thinking there, that it predates Earth, right? Specifically, Um, this is hell is not something that was made in reaction to anything that happened on planet earth, because the earth is one of those things, which is not eternal. It's not an eternal thing. The earth is going to come to an end. Right. Um, So the earth is not definitely not eternal. Um, And so therefore that seems to me, I guess uh, the, the, the most likely, uh, the most likely force of that, right? Like, Hell is not, in in other words, hell is not caused by human sin because of course the earth has to predate, you know, you have to have made non-eternal things in order for human sin to happen, right? Just given the framework of human existence. So, um, hell is not a response to human sin would be one thing that you could draw from this, I think. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, right exactly and of course as many people are pointing out uh because the fall of uh the fall of 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 lucifer right the 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 fall of satan um predates the creation of the world in according to medieval theology so um uh so again that like that hell was already necessitated justice already urged on the high artificer of hell to the making of hell prior to uh humans um and i endure eternally. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, abandon every hope who enter here. Um, abandon every hope who enter here. Now, uh, you were right, whoever said this a long time ago that I've almost forgotten. Um, uh, it is, of course, very remarkable We've just been told about the hope for Dante, right? The hope that Dante is given and his own response to that message of hope, opening up like the little flower when the sun shines on it, right? Um, he is being shown grace. He is being shown pity. He is being shown mercy and he is responding and he has been told to journey in hope. It is a journey of hope that he is going on, Um even being told about it even being told who who is calling him um this is designed in part to fuel his hope um and immediately he confronts abandon every hope who enter here um and so that's uh, um, uh really interesting um what do we make of it? Now, on the theological standpoint, it makes sense. Um, hope, hope is a necessarily temporal virtue, right? Hope is oriented in time. Hope is about the future. Um, the time will come when hope shall cease one way or the other right Um, and because when uh, when the future is certain there is there is no more hope is hope is hope is done hope is done right faith is to, this is why in the famous passage, of course, that I'm already sort of preparing, <laughs> setting myself up to quote, as you guys can see who know it well, um, in the famous passage at the end of 1 Corinthians 13, when Paul says, you know, uh, faith, he talks about faith, hope, and charity, right? Faith, hope, and love. Uh, and uh, he says, you know, of, you know uh, hope shall go away. Faith shall go away, right? Both of those will be fulfilled. Their jobs will be done. Hope is about... Holding on to the future that is to come, well, when the future arrives, you don 't need to hope anymore. Faith is the evidence of things unseen. Well, when you see it, you don 't have faith anymore you have its faith is replaced with knowledge, uh, so both of those are in that sense temporal they 're in that sense temporary right um, love, however, continues and endures, uh, and which is why Paul says the greatest of these is love uh, now. Hope, so they should abandon hope. Who enter there? Hell is a one-way street. Most of the time, there were a, a bunch, of, a bundle of exceptions, of course, as we saw it, as we'll be reminded of in a little bit. Uh, that is all of the Old Testament patriarchs and everybody, uh, all of the uh, souls who would be saved by Jesus when he harrowed hell, went through the gate and came back out again, following Jesus as he brought with uh, them with him up to paradise. Um, so that's um, uh, that's there's less than a hundred uh, percent retention rate uh, in hell um, but uh, but Veronica exactly um, those who are in hell c- cannot repent it's done there, there's there is no there is no hope there is no change um, it is um, it is it is over. And this leads us back to, David, as you were talking about. So, so what about the primal love, right? And also, what about pity? <clears throat> what about compassion for those who are suffering in hell? As I say, that's going to be one of the interesting things to watch as we go through. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, let's keep going. These words, their aspect was obscure. I read inscribed above a gateway, and I said... Master, their meaning is difficult for me. And he to me, as one who comprehends, here one must leave behind all hesitation. Here every cowardice must meet its death. For we have reached the place of which I spoke, where you will see the miserable people, those who have lost the good of the intellect. And when with gladness in his face he placed his hand upon my own to comfort me, he drew me in among the hidden things." All right, Uh, Virgil's explanation, his gloss on the inscription. Here, one must leave behind all hesitation. Here, every cowardice must meet its death. Of course, he is still thinking about Dante's fearfulness um, uh, and uh, low opinion of himself in, um, uh, transitory low opinion of himself uh, in Canto 2, but... uh, Here one must leave behind all hesitation. And it's interesting, again, if we... Through me the way into the suffering city. Through me the way to the eternal pain. Through me the way that runs among the lost. Okay. Um, Here one must leave behind all hesitation. Me, right? I'm reading this and I'm saying my gloss of this would be uh, you might want to hesitate (laughs) here, right? Think this through, okay? Before you cross the threshold, because, you know. um, uh, But this is not Virgil's reading, right? Virgil's reading is here, leave behind all hesitation here, right? Every cowardice must meet its death. Um, uh, We have reached the point, you must you can only go through if you leave behind hesitation and cowardice. Uh and that is an interesting to me slightly counterintuitive, but I don't think unsalutary way of uh of of reading it. Um but um yeah, yeah. Uh what on earth do the good of the in- does the good of the intellect mean? Yeah, David, that's a really interesting question. Again, and again, I'm going to uh, take the long view on that one. L- let's remember that phrase. The good of the intellect. Lost the good of the intellect. Let's keep that in mind, too. Um, I want to be kind of collecting some of these phrases uh, that we should be kind of carrying with us uh, as we go through the rest of the poem and watch, <clears throat> watch how Dante responds to things. Watch the kinds of lessons that he is being taught by Virgil. Watch Virgil's own example. Not by the way that Virgil is necessarily ideal, right? Like, we got to be careful about this. Virgil may speak here as one who comprehends, but there are limitations to Virgil's comprehension, right? Um, he knows much, and he is very wise. Um, but um, he's he's never seen the face of God, right? He is outcast himself. Uh, so just because Virgil says something doesn't necessarily 100% prove, uh, that it's correct. So it we just, I, I'm not saying it's going to be wrong all the time and we should be, uh, you know, uh, like re- reversing Virgil at a moment's notice, but I'm just saying that it's, uh, uh, we have to keep that in mind. Um, yeah. Okay. So, um, No. So, Arthur, it doesn't mean that hell's for stupid people, right, uh, because it's for those who have lost the good of the intellect. That presumes they had it in the first place, right, to some extent or other. And, of course, we shall soon meet uh, some decidedly not stupid people uh, as soon as we get in there. But let's, uh, let's go in among the hidden things ourselves here. And I, my head oppressed by horror, say, Master, what is it that I hear? Who are these those people so defeated by their pain? This is the first thing he's confronted with when he comes in through the gates, right? There's this noise and everything, and he hears these people crying out. And he to me, this miserable way is taken by the sorry souls of those who lived without disgrace and without praise. They now commingle with the coward angels, the company of those who were not rebels, nor faithful to their God, but stood apart. The heavens, that their beauty not be lessened, have cast them out, nor will deep hell receive them. Even the wicked cannot glory in them. Okay, so this is the ante hell of the lukewarm. Um, those who lived without disgrace and without praise. Um, as well as the these coward angels. Um, if um, you were wondering why um you had never heard of this before uh you know like wait i didn't know that there were like neutral angels who uh were kicked out of heaven but didn't go to hell um okay sorry i'm gonna i'm gonna indulge myself and say something deliberately inflammatory of course where did you think elves came from um that was by the way one of the theories of what elves were um many people were convinced of course in the middle ages that elves existed um uh the the long ivy but um uh that is the long livers uh and this was one theory uh of what these uh not mortal but not angelic beings were they are uh, the uh third party of angels who stood aside um that's um uh, that's uh yeah <laughs> that, that's that's that I'm not Dante's not referring to elves here don't want to create any confusion there I'm just saying this wasn't a, this was a concept uh in the middle ages that there did exist this sort of third group um but it wasn't a really central doctrine uh it wasn't um uh, uh yeah it wasn't sort of all over the place but it, but it was there it, it was out there it was out there um anyway so um Right, Stephen, exactly. Don't be picturing Gorfindel or Elrond in this crowd. Yeah, no, that's not the point. That's not the point at all. Um okay. The suffering people who live without disgrace and without praise. And that is particularly interesting because of the way that he has constructed that. He doesn't speak in terms of justice. He doesn't speak in terms of loyalty. He speaks in terms of well, it wouldn't be quite right to say popularity, right? But um, almost public opinion, without disgrace and without those who just didn't distinguish themselves. Let's let's this another. Here's a vision of them, and I, looking more closely, saw a banner that, as it wheeled about. Raced on, so quick that any respite seemed unsuited to it. Behind that banner trailed so long a file of people, I should never have believed that death could have unmade so many souls. After I had identified a few, I saw and recognized the shade of him who made, through cowardice, the great refusal. At once I understood with certainty. This company contained the cowardly, hateful to God and to his enemies. These wretched ones, who never were alive, went naked and were stung again and again by horseflies and by wasps that circled them. These The insects streaked their faces with blood, which, mingled with their tears, fell at their feet, where it was gathered up by sickening worms. This is the punishment of the cowardly. Notice how it shifts from praise and blame explicitly to cowardice. It's given a, a clearer moral focus here as his uh, sort of understanding of it uh, continues. Um, and they're they're following a banner, a banner, wheeling about, racing on. They can never stop following this banner. Really, really quickly um why because in life they were cowardly they didn't commit hateful to god and to his enemies um yeah um and that's interesting it's interesting because it sounds to me like a reversal. Almost. It's like a reversal, right? Um, they are condemned to do for all eternity what they did not do, what they failed to do, because they are defined by their inaction by what they didn't do. These people didn't, in a sense, they didn't do anything wrong. They didn't do anything at all. Um, The thing of which they are guilty is a negative thing. Cowardice. Um, Cowardice. Doing nothing. Being nothing. Accomplishing nothing. Um, Charging along behind a banner is exactly what they did not do in life, right? Had they gone behind a banner, any banner, Right, even a bad banner. Had they had they even been enthusiastic supporters of the wrong side, um, it uh, it would have been uh, it would have been better, right? Um, see, I don't think so, Brian. I don't think it is that they went through their lives as followers of others, not distinguishing themselves, and now have to follow this banner. I don't think so. That is because I don't think that he's suggesting being a follower is bad, like only being leaders. worth anything? Um, I don't think so. Uh, Being a good follower is a good thing. Um, uh, There are many uh, not only in hell, but also in heaven uh, who were good followers behind one banner or another. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, Gerald is remembering, of course, the servant who was uh, punished for burying the talents. Of course, several of you recognized my Illusion uh, in the previous um, uh, my previous subtitle, uh, which I which was neither hot nor cold, uh, and that is the the condemnation. It was the Church of Laodicea, wasn't it? I'm trying to remember which of the seven Asian churches at the beginning of Revelation it was. I sometimes forget Laodiceans, right? Yeah, yeah it was okay. Um, yeah, uh, which Jesus in chapter whichever it is uh, 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 two or three of. Uh, Uh, Revelation says, uh, you know, you were lukewarm uh, uh, and will be spat out of the mouth, you know, like people like cold water, people like hot water, nobody likes lukewarm water. Um, I would that you were hot or cold. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, Michael, exactly. These are people who were so afraid of choosing wrongly that they neglected ever to choose, right? And that itself has been a kind of choice, right? At least it has determined their, their destiny, right? Remember they're in hell, right? They're in hell. They're, 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 inside the gates, right? He crossed the threshold there, um, after they read the inscription and that's when he hears and sees, uh, you know, the vision of these folks being tormented. Um, he's not yet really gotten to hell proper. They're still, they're still, um, not really sort of welcomed in hell. Um, but it's also almost like this kind of, um, uh, this kind of state, this kind of marginal state, this kind of cowardice, this kind of negation. It's almost like a sort of special hell of its own, right? I mean, there's no question, um, uh, there's no question that they're be punished, right? We get the insects, we get the worms, um, we get the blood, um, there's no question uh we of course we get their 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 screams of torment um this is uh this is not a good outcome, so it's not to say that like they were neutral, so you know they're being treated neutrally they're not being treated neutrally um but they are being separated out um and that's um that's i think important it makes this it makes this space. A, a sort of an interesting one to me. The thing that's most interesting about it is that Dante's Hell is very rigidly structured. Um, you know, lots of people have, and it has, uh, um, you know, inspired many a diagram over the years. Um, and, but this spot is kind of weird. It's like this extra zone outside it. He hasn't gotten to the first circle of hell yet. And there's an important boundary that he has to cross before he gets to the first circle of hell. Um, So there's a very clear boundary of the first. This is not just like a part of the first circle of hell. It is very distinctly demarcated as outside of the first circle of hell. But it's also inside the gates of hell. So uh, it stands out very much in the overall schema of Dante's hell, where everything else has its place. But these people don't have a place. It's almost like that in itself is their own, um, is their is is part of their punishment. Um Yeah, yeah. Um anyway, okay. Then whom do we meet? The demon Charon, with his eyes like embers, by signaling by signaling to them has all embarked. There's a boat, and there's the boatman, right? The ferryman. The demon Charon, with his eyes like embers, by signaling to them has all embark. His oar strikes anyone who reaches out. As, in the autumn, leaves detach themselves, first one and then the other, till the bough sees all its fallen garments on the ground. Similarly, the evil seed of Adam descended from the shoreline one by one, when signaled, as a falcon called, will come. So do they move across the darkened waters. Even before they reach the farther shore, new ranks already gather on this bank. Okay, so it's a crowded ferry landing, uh, right, to get across into hell. Um. Uh, by the way, I'm not going to do this all the time, but this is an important thing. Uh, who... um. Those of you who know the Aeneid, who's the equivalent of the uh, the, the the cowardly? Virgil also. Uh, uh, let me not say Virgil because that's confusing. Uh, Aeneas also, when he goes on his trip to the underworld, meets folks in this position on the near side of the ferry. Right. Before he crosses into Hades proper. Does anybody remember whom he meets? Who in the Aeneid are the souls that don't get to cross the river? Virgil quiz. Virgil quiz. The answer is the unburied. It's the unburied. Those who die and who never have the proper funeral rites. This is where he meets with um, one of his companions, who is not buried, and he promises to go back and bury him when he gets back. Um, um, <clears throat> yeah, people who are unburied, people who are unburied. It is um, so. That's the the kind of the model that Dante is building off of, and he shifts it very interestingly. Um, those who are on the near side of the river Styx in uh, in Virgil's underworld in the Aeneid underworld, again, I should, I should, I should clarify, um, are objects of pity. It's not their fault. There's nothing they could do. Right. And this is what could happen to anybody. If those who are still alive, I mean, it's a call to duty, right? It's a call to have compassion on others. Um, but, um, uh, but it's, it's no rebuke to them. They're, they're, they're the victims and they're still hoping somebody will, you know, throw a posthumous funeral right for them so they can get across. Um, uh, Dante then takes that concept and he replaces it with this, you know, suspended hell, uh, suspended semi-hell of the uncommitted, right? Of the cowardly and uncommitted, making it very much... um, Making it very much a uh, uh, uh about I was going to say about their own choice, except well ironically not right um but you can see how he's almost sort of twisting that right again the the people who were there weren't there by their choice, right it was not in their hands what happened to their bodies after they died um and the people who are in that same place in Dante's hell are those who vacated choice, who abdicated any choice for their own selves, um, and that's uh, it's just a really interesting point of con- contrast. Um, as always, I'm not trying to point to the, you know, the true meaning of D- of Dante, but rather give you fuel fuel for thought uh, and hopefully inspire more discussions and uh, more analyses and papers to uh, um you know add to the great wealth of analyses of Dante that have already been done anyway okay but back to the demon charon so first of all we have noticed the um <laughs> syntax I'll do it again as in the autumn Leaves detach themselves, first one and then the other, till the bough sees all its fallen garments on the ground. Similarly, the evil seed of Adam descended from the shoreline one by one when signaled as a falcon called will come. Wait a second. So we start off with an epic simile. The... The bank... The shoreline of the river is like the bough, and the damned souls, the evil seed of Adam, right, are like the leaves which fall off the branch, first one and then the other, till the bough is barren, seeing all its fallen garments on the ground. Except we then shift in the end to a totally different simile about calling a falcon right when signaled as a falcon called will come wait wait so who's like a falcon um the evil seed of adam so they're being they're on the one hand they're like leaves falling right on the other hand they're like falcons descending when called, right? You whistle, fear, falcon, or whatever, however it is that you call them. I'm not a falconer myself. Uh, But anyway, by some means, right, you call the falcon and the falcon flies down. So we have another fall metaphor, right? First the falling leaf and then the falling falcon. Um, One responding in obedience to a call, the other responding to a different call, right? The call of gravity. Um, And... um, Uh, And we have this really fascinating blending of similes. Um, Can I explain the term epic simile? Well, no, not well. Um, An epic simile is a really long simile. Um, That's a a comically simplistic way of describing it, but it kind of works. Um, it's also a simile used in epic poetry, which is an even stranger and more comically inadequate definition of epic simile, but also fair enough. Um, this was a technique that Homer really liked. Um, to me, the key element of an epic simile, like what the point of an epic simile is, it instead of just giving you an image, a thing, right? You know, instead of just saying, you know, Uh, they fell like leaves, right? That gives you one single image, right? One single concept. And it doesn't tell you anything about it. It just asks you to connect it with this other thing, right? Um, An epic simile draws it out. And by drawing it out, by investing the comparison with actual narrative, um, it invites a comparison, again, not, not just with a flash image, but with another it's like sort of taking two stories and juxtaposing them right so you don't just have the single glimpse of a falling leaf right you instead have the narrative of a branch which in the autumn has leaves detaching themselves first like slowly you know uh, over days and 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 weeks or or hours um one leaf after another detaches and drifts till the ground until you're in in the end You know, the bow bow sees its fallen garments on the ground. The bow is like the hero, right? The protagonist of this little narrative, right? Um, You've got the bow, which has leaves, and then it watches its leaves one by one, drifting to the ground until it sees all of its fallen garments on the ground. Similarly to the, take that little story, right? And juxtapose it with this other piece of narrative, this other narrative of the damned soul's descending from the shoreline one by one and getting on the boat. That's that's what he's doing. So as you can see, it does a lot more work than a regular simile because again, you're not just you're not just thinking of an image. You're not just picturing an image. Now you're comparing two narratives, right? You you have to you almost are compelled to ask questions like, well, in what way is the is the the, the, what is it, the bank of the river, like this bough? So it is like the bough in the tree bough in winter. Um, where, you know, now we're thinking about the changes of the seasons and, uh, trees in wintertime. And, um, you know, are, are they sad like trees in November, as Fiverr the Rabbit would say? Um, I maybe, you know, I don't know. Um, uh, so, uh, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that's um that's the fun game involved in epic similes. And here we get a we get a we get a double, right? We get a double scoop of epic simile. Um but it's not just doubling our fun, right? It this is an exponential increase in fun <laughs> because uh it in my mind totally shifts it, right? Um the image of leaves detaching themselves first one and then the other till the bough sees all its fallen garments on the ground that is not to me a story of choice that is not to me a story of hurry that is not to me a story of obedience right that is just like as these things you know such are the things that happen and you know as time goes on and these and the the slow and graceful descent of the leaf and uh you know the inevitable change of the season and um Uh, You know, all of these things are ordained and, you know, as the fall comes and the spring shall come again. I mean, these these are the things that I'm thinking when I'm listening to the autumn leaf uh, simile. Right. I'm not thinking of almost anything like that when I'm hearing the signum of the the, the, the story of the calling of the falcon. Right. Signaling of the falcon uh, and it coming uh, when called. That doesn't I don't associate that with the fall of a leaf at all right? Um, it is not fluttering down. It's whoosh, right? Diving down. And there's, there's will, there's choice, there's obedience, there's good choice, there's good will, there's obedience there. But we're asked to basically combine these two things. The damned souls are like the leaves and they are also like the, uh, Falcon. Um, it's, um, Very interesting. Um, Now, David, you're right. I do think that that is one way in which we're supposed to imagine, uh, one way in which the bank of the river is like the trees. It's going to grow a new set of leaves, which will drop again in due season. And yes, that is true of the bank of the river of hell here, right? Um, It is... um, uh, It is a whole new crop of weaves is going to come up and going to fall off soon. So it does have this kind of, that kind of cyclical force to it, right? This is how things work. It's how things operate. Um, I, I agree uh, that that is one of the, the, the forces of that. Um, uh, Andrew asks, does the evil seed of Adam mean anything specific? Um, uh Oh well, uh, yeah, I mean, is it supposed to be children of Cain uh, oh no, I mean, like as opposed to children of Abel? no uh or or Seth, um yeah, no, of course, Abel didn't have a chance there uh but um uh, but yeah, no, 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 um I don't think so um i, I the evil seed of Adam, I think we are all the evil seed of Adam, uh at least potentially um uh. In my mind, the image of the seed is, um, is almost picking... I mean, what what else falls in the fall, right? I could tell you. <laughs> Look on my side yard and you'll see not only the beautiful autumnal New England leaves, but a carpet of acorns on my side yard. Um, and uh, yeah, seeds. Seeds fall in the autumn alongside the leaves, right? Um and um uh that is um uh so i think he is alluding to people as the evil seed of adam um uh, because of course adam's original sin is uh you know what started the business um but also uh, i i think it's, i think he's extending the autumnal metaphor there um uh they are dropping like evil like sin acorns basically um yeah, yeah. Yeah, good. And Serena's thinking, of course, about the fruit that Adam ate, right? You know, and so thinking about the uh the the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil also as part of that whole seed and growing metaphor that uh, um the seed of evil grew from that as well. Um yeah, yeah. Okay. Um let's keep going. Oh, sorry my subtitle here was virgil was right uh do you notice that there is a ferryman bringing souls across the river right i mean he wasn't right about the zone we just passed through right we just we just we you know, they're not the unburied folks turns out they're the uncommitted folks right the cowardly folks but Doggone it, wouldn't you know? Right? There is a dude with the boat, the dude named Charon with the boat who's bringing people across. And this scene is very like the scene in the Iliad. Um, there's even an explicit reference to it. Um, uh, Charon doesn't want Dante to come in. Well, I think we'll see that. But anyway, um, um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, no, and, and David, I'm not, I'm not crediting Virgil with making it up. Um, what I'm saying is, the direct parallels to Virgil's version of this story. I mean, the Aeneid is lurking in the background throughout Inferno, right? Because Virgil is leading Dante on a tour of the underworld and Aeneas's trip to the underworld. One of the, uh, you know, most famous elements. And, you know, this is Canto six of the Aeneid. Um, so it is when I, so when I, when I talk about like Virgil's, Virgil's hell or Virgil's Hades, um, I don't mean the Hades that Virgil invented. I mean the one that he described and uh, which Dante is most directly paralleling. Um, so in this sense, what I, mean is, um, um, what I mean is the one that he described. In other words, he's kind of the, the, the last greatest Virgil is, the last greatest representative of the pagans, of the pagan world, of the pagan learning. Um, of the pagan poetry. And guess what? He wasn't wrong. He wasn't wrong. Right? Dante is not. We could this is right, middle of Canto three, we can already see. We're not in a completely different world, right? Virgil, Virgil wasn't wrong. Not universally wrong. There are things that he wasn't quite again, like the it's not like he's just like following Virgil exactly. Right, we've already had a, a significant recontextualizing of something that Virgil himself described, namely the you know the thing with the unburied uh, folks. But, um, but, um, but he's not totally wrong, right? This is not you've had the pagan version. Here comes the Christian version, right? Now I'm going to show you the real Christian afterlife, so you can forget about all that pagan nonsense, right? That is emphatically what Dante is not saying here. Right. Um, And we can see that from very early on here. Um, uh, Yeah. (laughs) Okay. All right. Uh, So the ferryman doesn't want to let him on. Right. Um, Won't let him on the boat. Um, Aeneas was awkward. Uh, Aeneas got on the boat in, in Virgil's poem. And uh, he, it almost swamped the boat because, like, the boat is not designed for it. There's like a weight limit on the boat, right? And it's designed for insubstantial shades. It just was not, it doesn't have the freeboard for human bodies, right? So Aeneas gets into it, right? And the ferryman's like, dude, where are you going to swamp the boat? He uh, doesn't say that. He says it in Latin. Um, but um, anyway, that's what the ferryman is alluding to when he talks to uh, to Dante and he's like, hey, you can't get in the boat. It's like, we have one more living person in this boat. We're going to sink it for sure, right? Um, and Dante swoons. And after this was said, the darkened plain quaked so tremendously, the memory of terror then bathes me in sweat again. A whirlwind burst out of the tear-drenched earth, a wind that crackled with a blood-red light, a light that overcame all of my senses, and like a man whom sleep has seized, I fell. Dante collapses. In terror. The memory of which terror bathes him in sweat as he... Um, bathes him in sweat as he remembers it and the whirlwind bursts out of the tear-drenched earth. Why are these things important? Sweat. Tears. Whirlwind. What should we be remembering? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Stephen was saying, "You must be deader than this sign to <laughs> to, to to ride, yeah, something like that." Um. What what, uh, what, what, what should we just be remembering? Just earlier in this canto, canto three. Who, who, whom did we just meet, and what was happening with them? We just met the cowardly, right? How are, how are they how are they punished insects running around in circles really fast right remember the banner swirling around kind 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 of like a whirlwind, and you had their sweat streaked faces, the blood coming down through their sweat streaked faces as they're sprinting around naked right uh being stung by the insects uh and the tears their Tears of pain, their sweat and tears being soaked up in the ground and consumed by the worms in the ground. Right. The tear drenched earth is how whirlwind is bursting out. There's the blood red light. Right. Um, It's not blood. He's not being stung by insects here. Right. But uh, um, anyway, this is it's like it is reminiscent of the punishments that were being given to the the cowardly right, to those who didn't choose. And remember, he just overcame the cowardice issue, right? We just talked about cowardice, Dante, in uh, in Canto 2, right? So now in Canto 3, he is uh, afflicted by terror again, and he passes out as a result. Um, he loses consciousness, Um David Attlee, I'm not sure if this really fully counts as um, um, losing the good of the intellect, but his intellect is going into temporary hiatus at the very least, right? Um, I think this this does not look like a good sign, right? Dante we know i mean there's a kind of symmetry around the gates of hell right uh virgil boosting his uh courage right his having cowardice issues and then him being in the place of the cowardly and receiving what looks like almost like a shadow of their punishment um for the the, the shadow of the punishment of the cowardly um and um yeah, yeah. So, um, and then he collapses, not like a dead person, only like a sleeping person. Right? He's uh, he's not quite dead, um, but uh, but anyway, I, I think that this connection is 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 clearly important. So, so Dante's just fainted. This will not be the only time he swoons. Um, so let's notice that the first time he swoons, he seems to be implicated, implicated in the sins positive or negative, right of the folks that are surrounding him here. Um, we could have known, right? Even the final, spe- even, the, even the gloss that Virgil makes on the, inspric- on the inscription suggests Dante needs bolstering in this regard. Right. Um what is that what is what does that terrifying inscription mean? And Virgil says, That inscription means you should man up and don't be afraid, right? Put cowardice aside and move forward. Um and let's go meet the people who didn't put cowardice aside and move forward. Like, okay. So we're we're all we're on the same um we're all on the same uh, uh the same page here. Um Yeah, yeah. Um Keep that in mind. The heavy sleep within my head was smashed by an enormous thunderclap, so that I started up as one whom force awakens. I stood erect and turned my rested eyes from side to side, and I stared steadily to learn what place it was surrounding me. In truth, I found myself upon the brink of an abyss, the melancholy valley containing thundering, unending wailings. That valley, dark and deep and filled with mist, is such that, though I gazed into its pit, I was unable to discern a thing. He is gazing off a cliff, right? He is on the edge of a precipice, uh, the brink of an abyss, the melancholy valley containing thundering, unending wailings. This is hell itself. So he is now about to cross into hell proper. And to cross into hell proper is to descend. Um, uh, the circles of hell are a downward-going amphitheater, right? Um, or like a downward-moving amphitheater. Um, so you've got to climb down to get to the first circle, uh, right? Again, that's why that kind of ledge up at the top where the um, the sort of quasi-damned R is uh, uh, sort of in such an odd place. Um and Gerald, he did move forward while asleep, right? It looked like uh, they had to cross the river. Dante sleeps through the crossing of the river. We don't know. Did he cross the river? Did they did they take his sleeping body across on the boat? Um, did he cross by some other means? Uh, we don't know. He actually does travel, apparently, um, while he's asleep. And... Uh, and he is startled up. He does not wake peacefully, right? He is startled up by an enormous thunderclap, um, and he stood stands awake, erect, and turns his his resting uh, rested eyes from side to side. Um, and what he sees is all of um, what he sees is all of uh, uh, of hell now. Carrie, I think that that's a really important point, right? Um, Only the dead shall cross. When he swoons into this sort of thing that's kind of like sleep, he crosses on the boat. Um, Again, it's like death, right? But it wasn't quite death. Uh, But it's also not quite a nap either. Because while he was in that insensible state, uh, while he was in that death-like sleep, he crossed the river, which only the dead are permitted to cross um, I agree Carrie that does not seem to me um, that does not seem to me insignificant um, I think I think that that's and it tells us something about about Dante himself oh and I'm sorry I uh, uh, William Coley made a wonderful observation before and devorah as well and I'd almost forgotten uh, to come back and mention them. Um, If uh, you're thinking about sweat and blood trickling down and tears uh, and you're remembering that it's the morning of Good Friday, you are correct. Um, So Dante's sweat and blood is like the sweat and blood of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, in the early morning hours of Good Friday. Yeah, Mm -hmm. sure, exactly. Also, like the uncommitted semi-damned as well, right? Uh, But remember, that's okay, right? Different allegorical levels, and we're good. But yes, well well well-remembered there. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, and that is really interesting, David. You're right that we get um, at the end of Canto 3, um, we have a light that overcomes all of his senses, right? A wind that crackled with a blood-red light, like a flash of lightning, right? And then a thunderclap, which wakes him up. Um, how much time has passed? <laughs> how far away is the storm, <laughs> right? I mean, it does, it, it's like the, it's like his traveling, his swoon and his traveling is made to feel almost like the interval between the lightning and the thunder, Right. I, I agree. I think that's a really, that's a really interesting point. Um, much has happened. Much has changed. And yet it's like no time has actually, has actually happened. Um, who Lives in the First Circle of Hell? Here, for as much as hearing could discover, there was no outcry, louder than sighs, that caused the everlasting air to tremble. The sighs arose from sorrow without torments, out of the crowds the many multitudes, of infants and of women and of men. The kindly master said, Do you not ask, Who are these spirits whom you see before you? I'd have you know before you go ahead. They did not sin, and yet, though they have merits, that's not enough, because they lacked baptism, the portal of the faith that you embrace. And if they lived before Christianity, they did not worship God in fitting ways. And of such spirits, I myself am one. For these defects and for no other evil, we now are lost and punished just with this. We have no hope, and yet we live in longing. These are the righteous damned. These are the righteous folks who lived before Jesus, but didn't know God. Right. The, 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 ancient Jews got in, right. David goes in and, and the prophets go in and right. We get all the, you know, all these old Testament figures who go with Jesus at the harrowing of hell. Uh, but the pagans, the righteous pagans, this is where they are, uh, in what is generally called limbo, the first circle of hell, um, uh, where the only punishment is size. The only, um, uh, punishment is living in longing with no hope. Um, they are lost and punished with living in longing, but not having hope. Um, notice, of course, Virgil says of these of such spirits, "I myself am one." Let's look at more descriptions. Tell me, Master. Tell me, Lord. I then began because I wanted to be certain of that belief which vanquishes all errors. Did any ever go, by his own merit or others, from this place toward blessedness? Any precedent for anybody leaving here? And he who understood my covert speech replied, I was new entered on this state when I beheld a great Lord enter here. The crown he wore, a sign of victory. He carried off the shade of our first father, of his son Abel, and the shade of Noah, of Moses, the obedient Mm -hmm. legislator, of Father Abraham, David the king, of Israel, his father, and his sons. And Rachel, she for whom he worked so long, and many others, and he made them blessed. And I should have you know that before them, there were no human souls that had been saved. Virgil remembers the harrowing of hell. It happened pretty soon after he arrived, actually, right? Uh, Yeah, he said, I was new entered on this state. I'd only been here in limbo for a few years when the harrowing of hell happens um, uh, yeah um, the crown he wore a sign of victory um, Adam gets carried off um, he's the first one mentioned our first father um, let's keep going I want, I mean, we'll come back to some sort of general things here after that voice was done, when there was silence, I saw four giant shades approaching us. Uh, so I'm not. I, I'm not. I didn't. I resisted the temptation to read all the descriptions of everybody, talking about who is present in any particular uh, uh, circle is always good theater. Um, but uh, here, of course, this is all the great pagans, right? So I skipped over all the philosophers, right? We get to, you know we get all the big philosophers, including the philosopher. Right. Everybody knows who the philosopher is. Right. In in the Middle Ages, if somebody talks about the philosopher, which philosopher? Do you know which philosopher they're talking about? Aristotle. Yeah. Aristotle is the philosopher. Um, so he is the one who is leading. The, uh, the yeah. Socrates and Plato are beneath Aristotle uh, in the uh, uh, in the the you know the 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 consortium of uh, uh, of. Of philosophers there but this of course, this is even more important to Dante four giant shades approaching us in aspect they were neither sad nor joyous, my kindly master then began by saying look well at him who holds that sword in hand, who moves before the other three as lord that shade is Homer the consummate poet, the other one is Horace, satirist the third is Ovid and the last is Lucan Because each of these spirits shares with me the name called out before by the lone voice, they welcome me, and doing that, do well. They are all poets, right? These are the great poets, the big four poets. Um, Homer. Notice what he says about Homer. Homer. Notice also what he doesn't say about Homer. He calls Homer the consummate poet and depicts him with a sword in hand. Um, He doesn't say anything about Homer's poetry, and there's a very good reason for this. He's never read it. Dante has never read it. Um, Nobody had read it. This is long past the time when Greek was generally known in Western Europe. And um, they didn't read Homer. Um, They read Latin translations of Homer, often bad Latin translations of Homer. Um, But they speak, they meaning medieval poets in general, speak of Homer like this. He's always given first place because Virgil spoke of of Homer like that, right? And so if if uh, if in the Aeneid, Virgil, you know, I like it's. all you have to do is read the Latin poets and you will come away with a very uh, high opinion of Homer, right? But it's kind of secondhand, uh, really. Um, so, the uh, you know, the consummate poet, I trust, right? At least we have Virgil's say-so on this. Um, uh, and Horace and Ovid and Lucan. Um, Somewhere, oh yes, of course. Um, For um, lovers of classical poetry, of Latin poetry in particular, there is a noticeable absence here. Um, If you read that list to folks who really loved Latin poetry, Homer, okay, Horace, Ovid, Lucan, and Virgil is the guide, right? So Virgil and Horace and Ovid and Lucan are there. Everyone's going to be waiting for the other shoe to drop. There is... There's another... There's a dude missing, right? There's a dude missing. The dude who's missing is almost never read by anybody anymore. Um, Modern people still read uh, Virgil, still read Ovid... Most of them don't read Lucan anymore, and nobody reads Statius anymore either. But Statius is the, th- is the other great Latin poet, um, named only after Virgil and Ovid, and usually above Lucan. Um, so it's, uh, he is a noticeable absence in this gathering here. So attentive medieval readers, uh, attentive and well-educated medieval readers, would be kind of perking up at this line saying... Wait a second. Where's Statius? Right? So we'll have to see where Statius is. Um, And so I saw that splendid school assembled, led by the lord of song incomparable, Homer, who like an eagle soars above the rest. Soon after they had talked a while together, they turned to me, saluting cordially. And having witnessed this, my master smiled and even greater honor than was mine, for they invited me to join their ranks. I was the sixth among such intellects. <laughs> this is... <laughs> oh, golly. One of the most shamelessly self-serving passages in the entire Commedia, right? Um, uh <laughs> Dante being all like, yeah, you know, then uh, Homer and Virgil and Ovid and Lucan and Horace were all together and then they were like, Come on over, Dante, right? You're totally one of the group. Um, <laughs> oh man. Um Yeah, exactly, Jameson. It is like it is like the most egregious um Yeah, that's exactly what I was gonna say. It's like the most egregious uh self insertion fanfic ever in the history of self insertion fanfic, right? I mean I I defy anybody uh, to produce a like purer example of self-insertion fanfic than that right Um, it's uh, yeah this is a not humble brag Jocelyn exactly this is just a brag brag Um, uh, yeah yeah Um, (laughs) oh man so um, but wait it gets better it gets better. I, ha- I cannot here describe them all in full. My ample theme impels me onward so. What's told is often less than the event. The company of six divides in two. My knowing guide leads me another way, beyond the quiet, into trembling air, and I have reached a part where no thing gleams. First he's invited in to join the great heroes of classical poetry, the greatest poets who ever lived, right? Then he leaves them behind, in canto four of his hundred canto epic, right? Um, bye, Homer. I, I I'm looking back in the rearview mirror now at Homer and Ovid and Lucan. Uh, yep. See you guys. It was nice, really. It was nice. But off we go. I'm off to explore things now. This is a little bit of a humble brag in a sense because he is like descending down further right i mean he's you know you could say he's not it's it's not like he's uh it's not like this is an instant promotion right that he's getting um but it's um it's hard for me not to think uh of that right when the company of six divides in two here um and uh, uh anyway i <laughs> Um yeah, you know, Ben, I'm not saying Dante can't back it up. I'm really not, you know. Uh and you know, you could say like Beowulf, right? I mean, if you can do it, it's you know it's, it's not it's not bragging if you can back it up. Um but um uh <laughs> but, but still I don't think I'd have had the face to um uh <laughs> to write this passage into the beginning of my epic poem. Um, But I don't just want to be laughing at Dante's expense here. Um, Because, of course, remember where we started in Canto 2, right? Remember the flower opening up to receive the rays of the sun, right? Why is he going on? How is he moving on past the great epic poets? Not by the strength of his genius, right? Not by the strength of his poetry, he's being called, right? He is responding faithfully, uh, to the call and to the grace that is being shown him. Um, this is not by his choice and not under his power. Um, so again, I don't want to, it's easy to laugh at this passage and I can never help myself from laughing at this passage. Uh, but yet there's, um, um, it's, uh, it's 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 kind of there, yeah. Tim asks, uh, "No Greek poets, but Homer." Well, Tim, they, they barely knew any. I mean, they just they 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 didn't have Greek. They didn't read Greek. Um, they know about Homer uh, because everybody talks about Homer. I mean, you, you can't read a Latin poet without them being like, "Ah, oh, Homer, the greatest of all." Um, so they parrot that that Homer was the greatest of all, but they don't know. They've never read his poetry, um, so they trust them they trust the Latin poets who did read his poetry and so they go along with it Um, but they didn't know them so yeah they don't really know many Greek poems Greek poets at all Um, yeah yeah um, yeah um, okay we're starting Canto 5 and we're not quite done with class bet you didn't think we'd do that So I descended from the first enclosure down to the second circle, that which girdles less space, but grief more great, that goads to weeping. There dreadful Minos stands, gnashing his teeth, examining the sins of those who enter. He judges and assigns as his tail twines. I mean that when the spirit born to evil appears before him, it confesses all, and he, the connoisseur of sin, can tell the depth in hell appropriate to it. As many times as Minos wraps his tail around himself, that marks the sinner's level Always there is a crowd that stands before him. Each soul, in turn, advances toward that judgment. They speak and hear. When Then they are cast below. Minos. Yet another pagan figure. And yet another pagan figure who is serving... <laughs> yes, exactly. Catriana says, Minos is Hell's sorting hat. <laughs> yes. Yes, he is. I never thought of that before, Katriana, but you are completely right. Um yes. Um so um okay. Notice that um both of um uh, both of the the like big pagan figures that we've seen uh, that is big figures from pagan stories from pagan mythology um are gatekeepers. Right. I mean, they're they're transitional guards. Right. Um, Minos stands between the first and second circle because uh, the first circle is sort of the default circle for the righteous uh, damned. Right. They can't get into heaven, but they they don't they don't get cast down into punishment. Um, Less space, but more grief. Right. Is uh, down in the lower circles of hell where Minos sends uh, those who deserve it. Um, I can't help but notice... um, uh, who is Jameson, yeah, uh, asking about this, about determinism and stuff before, I think it was you. Um, uh, Spirit born to evil was the phrase that jumped out at me there. When the spirit born to evil appears before him, does that mean predestinated to evil? Like that this was their... You know, they had no choice. I don't know, but that's an interesting phrase. Spirit born to evil. Uh, Notice it happens by confession, right? Each spirit confesses their sins to Minos. And Minos casts them down. Now, um, okay, so um, Minos. Jocelyn says, who gave Minos a tail? Um, Dante. Yeah, that I don't. I can't think, or if I knew, I've forgotten any other poets who gave Minos a tale. Um. Uh. Um. Yeah. So Stephen is asking a very sensible question: Are Minos and uh, Charon being punished as well? Uh. Well, we know the answer for sure concerning Charon. Yes. Why do I say that? Remember, he was he was a demon the demon Charon, right? Minos? I don't know. I assume so. Um, And notice he is um, standing on the edge of tier one, right, of the first circle of hell, of Limbo, where the righteous pagans live. Minos is famous for a couple things, right? He is famous for being the he's the one who has minotaur issues, right? Um, but he also is the one who um, he's famous for his wisdom. He is a judicious king. He's um, he seems to be given the role of continuing to like decree dooms because he was famous for decreeing good dooms um yeah he's 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 the connoisseur of sin which is a really really interesting phrase isn't it um uh yeah yeah um yeah i agree david uh that uh, gnashing his teeth doesn't sound like he really enjoys his job um He's dreadful, gnashing his teeth um it's possible to imagine that he is gnashing his teeth not in his own torment sort of directly but because he's sort of uh you know like confronted by the um uh you know the evil of the i mean he's just like constantly inundated right with uh uh with uh other people's sin. Um and he's 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 dreadful, like dreadful to the sinners, right? Because he's the one who's gonna be who's gonna be determining where they go. He's not the artificer of hell, right? And he's not the one who designs the punishment. He's just the one who knows he's just the sorting hat, right? He's just the one who um knows how to sort them out. He's the connoisseur of sin. Um, I've always found Minos a really interesting figure. Um, He is kind of demonic in that he's got a tail, right? Um, And the wrapping of the tail, the sign, he wraps his tail around himself. So he's got a very long tail, apparently, because he can wrap it around himself up to nine times. Um, And it is that determination. So thinking again about that gnashing of his teeth, There is a way in which he's almost. I want to be careful saying this. All right, I'm just going to say it and then I'll I'll try to qualify it, but it's almost like he's implicating himself. Right. Um, Almost like he's sort of enacting on his own person, the condemnation. Um, There seems to be a kind of connection between the sinner that confronts him and himself Right. I, I just the the fact that he he denotes the diagno like he makes the diagnosis literally on his own body with his own tail, right? Which I don't fully understand why he has. But um um uh yeah, yeah. Um And Stephen, I have no idea who was doing this before Minos got there. Um, Somebody must have had this job earlier on, you'd think. uh, And we don't know. Um, uh, Did somebody else get promoted or demoted? Uh, I I, I don't know. I I, I don't know. No idea. Um, His placement, physical, like geographical placement, leads me to believe that he is... One of the righteous damned, as well as his reputation for being a good judge, uh, which seems to be the particular trait that's being focused on here. Um, and yet his tail, his very long tail and his gnashing teeth, suggest to me that he is more demon uh, than human here. Um, uh yeah, Brian, I agree. There is something more visceral about the action than if Minos just spoke the doom and sent the sinner away. He's not just a bureaucrat, right? He's not just sitting there with a clipboard, you know, checking off and tallying things. That would be detached, right? That would be kind of depersonalized. Um, His own gnashing teeth, his, his own involvement, literally involvement, right? He's being involved. He's being wrapped up uh, in... Uh, uh that's if i'm remembering correctly literally what the word involved means um he's being uh he's involving himself in the condemnation wow it's not even really a pun it's just very precise <laughs> he involves himself in the uh um uh in the condemnation of everybody um and um uh, i um uh, I have to think that there is, that both things are involved here. That is both a sort of acknowledgement of his wisdom, but I think it's also his punishment. He does not seem to enjoy his job, right? Um, I think that his casting of people down into their eternal punishment is part of his own punishment. He has a unique punishment here. And yes, he is the one who does demand the sacrifice of the you know young men and women um uh to be sacrificed to the minotaur so um uh, you know he doesn't uh, perhaps escape uh totally scot free for that um but um yeah as david says it's 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 kind of uh it's kind of like casting people down into the labyrinth Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, Notice. If we seize on that, right, let's just take that as a working hypothesis about Minos' punishment. Mm -hmm. In life, he cast innocents down into the labyrinth, right, where they were consumed, um, where they were preyed upon and destroyed, his punishment is to keep doing almost the same thing for all eternity right he must continue that action not innocence right he's casting the guilty so there is now ju- he is now a judge it is this is now justice it is a combination of what he did well and what he did badly right in the world um but um but nevertheless an element of his action is a perpetuation of what of the of the the crime that he committed the sin that he committed in life and he does not seem to relish it um yeah yeah andrew it's almost like a redeemed version of his old job right i mean it's 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 remarkable because there i mean it's he's He's doing good work. Right. I mean, he's he is uh, uh, he is part of the just punishment system of hell now. Um, But that is also a punishment to him himself. Um, And uh, that's. Uh, yeah brian i I think you're right, Brian points out there's a kind of paradox if he enjoyed and took pleasure in condemning souls right i mean if this were uh if this were a really fun job for him, such like it would be an eternal reward for him to be able to punish souls um then he himself would be evil and worthy of punishment um so the fact that he doesn't enjoy it may speak well of him uh, in a way. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, and again, he's standing on, on the edge. It's true. But he's standing on the circle of the righteous dead. Right. Uh, the righteous pagans. Um, yeah. OK, going to stop there. Resisting the temptation, which is probably a good thing to do uh, on a consistent basis uh, when discussing how um, I did start Canto five, right? We only got 15 lines in, but I started canto five. Minus is a puzzle. Uh, and uh, next time we will continue canto five. Um, do read at least no, we, we did notice we did the end of two, and we did all of three, and we did all of four, and then we did the beginning of five. So we, we touched on four cantos today. Um, But we only really did two in a bit. Um, So make sure to read through. So read five, six and seven. Make sure you make sure you read five, five, six and seven. Um, We will be back on track, Uh, back on track and only one class behind uh, after next week. So. All right. That's what we're going to do. So thank you very much, everybody, for joining me tonight. Uh, Back with the famous... Paolo and Francesca next time. Um, all right. Good night, everybody. See you guys next week. The Mythgard Academy has been offering in-depth discussions of awesome books and films since 2013. Completely free to attend and free to download. If you've enjoyed our discussions and would like to help them continue, please consider donating at signumuniversity.org/fund.